Welcome to Corrosion Chronicles, an original podcast series produced by the Materials Technology Institute. I'm Heather Elaine, the Executive Director of MTI, and I'm here with my co-host, Mark Cook, Materials Specialist with Dow Chemical Company. Hey, Mark. Hey, Heather. Our guest today is Chris Carey. Chris had a 25-year career at Dow Chemical Company, and he worked 33 years altogether in industry, including also working at Savannah River Nuclear Site for DuPont and Westinghouse. So Chris is a subject matter expert in graphite heat exchangers, and he is on all of the pertinent code committees that work on these exchangers, including ASME and BIC and PCC1. So he's really a leader in this industry. He's an absolute expert in the topic, and we're honored to have him with us. So Chris, welcome. And can you start off by telling us how you got interested and became involved in graphite? Well, yes. Thank you for the introduction, Heather, and nice to be with you and Mark today. Well, I had some early career involvement with pressure vessels and and safety valves, but early on, I didn't have very much specific heat exchanger or graphite specialization. I mostly worked as a general maintenance engineer, also with utilities, did quite a bit with combustion and combustion control along the way. Then around 2004, we had a little organizational shuffle as tends to happen in an organization. Someone moved on, leaving a spot, and and we shuffled positions in our reliability group. And I found myself as a newly minted heat exchanger reliability engineer. So at that point, I assumed responsibility for mechanical integrity, maintenance, inspections, and really the whole life cycle of uh, the heat exchangers in the plant, a population of approximately 500 or so that ranged in materials from carbon steel through stainlesses and quite a bit of tantalum. Uh, and in that mix, about maybe two dozen or so graphite heat exchanger applications. And so almost immediately I got into some uh, overhauls and rebuilds and learned a lot very quickly. Some of that amounts to the, the school of hard knocks and I'll share some of those learnings today with some suggestions for, for how to manage this equipment. Uh, I would note that along the way, it was around 2013 when we had uh, a pretty difficult application. We actually switched it from analum to graphite, which was really a good move, very challenging a application for e either material. And so even with the move of that application to graphite, there, there remained some real improvement opportunities. and. Some of those challenges from 2013 and forward really prompted me to take a deeper dive into things such as the ASME code. And that, that's how I got involved with the ASME and the NBIC. So Chris, uh, maybe we would start at the beginning for our listeners. Graphite that we're talking about, where's it come from? Are we talking about the same stuff that we, uh, that we buy in powder form for our Pinewood Derby cars? Well, yeah. So if, if that material, I'm familiar with it, you can get a little squirt bottle or, or squeeze bottle of graphite powder. So if it is in fact graphite, then yes, it's, it's the same sort of thing as in a graphite heat exchanger. The supply chain for producing the graphite, it starts with the residue from the coker process in refineries and also coal tar pitch out of coal refining. And so those two materials, coke from the coker process, coal tar pitch, are mixed together in some proportion and then heated up to drive off organics and then heated further 
to produce the crystalline structure, and this is called graphitization. So this is different than the graphitization that occurs in steels, for example, at high temperature where the carbon begins to segregate and effectively ruins the properties. When you graphitize carbon to make chemical process equipment out of it, that's intentional and it's actually a good thing. And that process is sort of a continuum that occurs. It doesn't have a distinct transition temperature like things like uh, austenitic to ferritic transitions in steels. They don't. Occur, it doesn't occur at that specific of, of a temperature, but it's more of a gradual thing, a continuum over a range of about 1300 to 3000 C. And as that change occurs, the properties change somewhat. Thermal conductivity increases while strength tends to decrease. Having the atoms arranged in these planes, it's not so strong um, in, in the slipping direction. Which is why it's a good lubricant for our Pinewood Derby cars. Yes, exactly. Okay. And so you'll, you'll hear a term fully graphitized used in the industry. I think there might be a little bit of a marketing angle on that because complete graphitization to a, a perfect structure, in which the atoms are just in perfect planes, it may not really be the optimum or the strength and the overall combination of properties, including the thermal conductivity and machinability and things like that. And so the ASME code in PARG UIG for graphite, it actually defines graphite material as a bonded granular carbon body whose matrix has been subjected to a temperature in excess of 2400 C. So that's short of the full graphitization temperature as it's commonly under understood. Note also here the use of the word bonded, a bonded granular carbon body. That's referring to the fact that graphite as it's used in chemical process equipment is actually a composite material. And that's because the graphite following graphitization is actually porous. It's also often called raw graphite for that reason in that it's not usable in that raw graphitized state. So to make it tight for chemical process service, it's necessary to fill the pore space with something to make it tight. And so that's, um, and so that's done with what's called an impregnant or an impregnation process. The most common impregnant is phenolic resin. And that's applied as uh, a liquid with low viscosity. It's forced into the material with vacuum and pressure cycles followed by heating. In the phenolic resin, it's essentially a thermoset, sort of a plastic, and, and when the heating occurs, polymerization occurs, and it turns that material into a solid in the pore space. So if it's not done properly, you can end up with a lot of bubbles in, in the material, and actually at high temperatures in service, that reaction can continue, and the, the resin effectively sort of sublimates and disappears behind continuation of that reaction to water, leaving a void space in the material. So to answer your question about manufacturer differences, does it differ from manufacturer to manufacturer? The answer there is yes and no. All of the manufacturers pretty much carry multiple grades, including sort of a low end or uh, a commodity grade that would be typically a coarse graphite. Properties may not really be as good as some of the premium materials, and, and these materials are largely interchangeable. 
then most of the manufacturers also offer a more refined product. And so the grain sizes may be sorted more, uh, more uniformly. The material might have a higher range of strength, thermal conductivity, and, and things like that. So better product, you can expect to pay more. And just like in anything else, there are, there are trade-offs. The uh, more refined material is different than the less refined. It may have less pore volume, but then while that contributes greater lightness out of that material, at least initially, there may be less resin in it. So it may not be quite as tough if the service is subject to impact. So it's really, really hard to generalize and say that one material is better than another. It's more a matter of learning what makes a particular application tick and what kind of graphite is really needed or will perform well. So Chris, how do these graphite components get connected together to make a heat exchanger? It's not, it's not all one solid monolithic block, this machine, right? Right. Well, the components, at least the phenolic impregnated ones can be joined with a, a cement that the manufacturers uh, mix up in their shop and apply to join the materials. And similar to the phenolic resin, it's a, it's a thermally cured sort of a material. So you mix it up and it's pasty material, and then you apply it and heat it and it cures out and join the parts. Is it similar composition? Is it basically phenolic resin and graphite fines, or is there more to it than that? Well, that's my understanding. There, there are graphite fines and it typically graphite powder goes into it. The material, it looks a lot like JD Well, but if you actually say that in front of the manufacturers, it seems like it hurts their feelings a little bit. They'll, they'll tell you that, that, oh no, it's nothing like that at all. It's a lot, it's a lot better. <laughs> Meanwhile, they're, they're trying to step in front of the big box of JD Well, they've got a bunch <laughs> That's right. Right. So, so they do tend to be kind of secretive. They keep the ingredients away out of sight in a, in a room usually. And when it's time to apply it, it just sort of appears out of nowhere in a container. But they, they are, in fact, mixing it to a recipe. If it's ASME code work, then underlying all of this is a certified cement specification that the manufacturer actually produces, and then they have to qualify it according to a process. And so it, it is a controlled uh, material in that sense. So, Chris, I know that as unique and interesting as these graphite exchangers are, nobody uses them unless they have to. So what kinds of services, chemical services, is it suitable for? And how does it compare to other options in those services? Yes, yes. Um, well, you do want to be careful about what someone says in a podcast and taking that to actually do, do applications. So I would caution anyone doing an application to really do due diligence. Now, the the manufacturers will have chemical compatibility charts for their materials and also a lot of experience with different applications. I guess with, with that caveat, what I can say is that graphite is widely used in hydrochloric acid synthesis plants where you burn chlorine and hydrogen to produce HCl and then absorb it to produce aqueous acid. It's also widely used in sulfuric acid plants and phosphoric acid plants, although even the sulfuric acid can become problematic at higher concentrations and temperatures. Also, uh, graphite doesn't like oxidizing media, so that's things like the nitric acid, any kind of hyperchlorite, halogens, chlorine, 
things like that. And also caustics like sodium hydroxide can be problematic. Also, some organics can make the phenolic resin swell. So really, it's best to consult the manufacturer for any uh, new application. I suppose also if you had a mixture of things that goes beyond the available application charge, you could do some testing, uh, mix up a, a batch of it, and then test for relevant properties like strength or swelling or, or what have you. Great. Adam. And I've also run into silicon carbide heat exchangers. How is that different from graphite? Well, silicon carbide and graphite have some similarities and, and some differences. They're, they're both uh, non-metals and have a, a brittleness that, that is ceramic-like, and they can be both affected by a thermal shock. They both have reasonable thermal conductivity, and so they make make for a decent heat exchanger. Some of the differences are that the silicon carbide tends to have size limitations, whereas graphite can be made very large. Even things like tube sheets can be cemented together. And, and so with graphite, you see diameters six feet and lengths of 20 feet and so forth, where, where the silicon carbide tends to be more on the order of uh, specialty chemical sort of sizes is what I have seen. Also, the silicon carbide, I'm not aware of it being practically submittable uh, like graphite is, and so it's necessary to seal the tube ends. And usually that's done with some sort of a, a compression fitting, often with PTFE parts. So for the silicon carbide, that, that might seem like a bit of a weakness, but actually it can be a strength in that it, it lends itself to replacement of individual tubes in the field. That can be as simple as unscrewing uh, sort of a clamping ferrule sort of an arrangement on an individual tube. Some of them require more of a, an elaborate disassembly, but in general, silicon carbide tubes are easier to replace than, than graphite tubes where the bundle is cemented together. Yeah. Neat. So um, we've been talking a lot about the exchangers, but what are there are there any other types of um, applications, types of equipment that can be made out of graphite? Well, there are. We we tend to talk about exchangers because I think the bulk of the material does go into exchangers, and those can be either shell and tube. Uh, the ASME code does make a reference to a bayonet heat exchanger. It's not clear exactly what, what is meant by that, but it, it can mean just a small sort of um, insertion heater that goes in through a nozzle or an immersion heater that goes in, a say, an acid bath to heat it. The uh, cylindrical block design is another long-standing standard sort of a design in which the graphite is in cylindrical blocks, typically a modular approach in which they're stacked. They're also drilled typically along the long axis for the process stream and then cross-drilled across the diameter with non-intersecting holes for the service stream. And, and those cylindrical block exchangers, they can be either vaporizers or absorbers, but they, they do tend to lend themselves more, I think, to single-phase applications. They, they do pack a lot of heat transfer area into a small size, so they tend to be economical and Usually they're the, they're the starting point. It's also possible on a cylindrical block to line the shell for corrosion resistance with a coating or canard or, or something like that. Also, uh, heat exchangers can be rectangular block. They're commonly called cubics, even when they're not actually a cube. And 
those can be a good uh, acid-to-acid interchanger, say, because it's easy to make both sides with all wetted materials out, out of graphite. And then the code also mentions plate heat exchangers and cylindrical vessels. And so you can make a graphite column, although I don't tend to see a whole lot of those. So the ASME addresses the pressure-containing parts, but really you're free to make whatever parts you choose that are non-pressure-containing. And so this could be uh, things like column internals. You can make distributors, vacuum protection sleeves for fluoropolymer lined equipment. Really anything that you uh, could conceive of could be either cast and uh, graphitized or machined out of a out of a block. And I would note also that these aren't mentioned in the ASME code, but you could actually make, there, there's a company that does this. They manufacture a graphite spiral exchanger called an annular Prove. It's a really neat product, and, and I think uh, it's really good for certain applications. I hope, hope that that product uh, gets a little more traction, actually, in, in the industry, because I think it it's, uh, has a lot of advantages. I'd like to see that uh, graphite spiral exchanger. That sounds interesting. Um, so I'm curious about why why you think graphite's got its own ASME code section. I mean, you know, for the most part, like you mentioned, column internals, uh, an insertion type bayonet heater, but even like the heat exchangers, typically it's got a steel shell around it for um, pressure uh, retention. So, you know, why why isn't graphite treated the same way as say PTFE? You know, where uh, it's it's used as a lining rather than as a as a code material. Graphite can be applied as a lining, but it was added as a code material in 2009 to address certain weaknesses with that approach. Uh, the most important thing is that with the graphite as a non-pressure boundary, both sides of the exchanger then are required to have the same pressure and temperature ratings. And so that works against optimizing the, the design. And so that was uh, the main driver, but then production of the material as an ASME material is more controlled as well with uh, certificates and a controlled process and, and things like that. And so before it was added as a code material, as you say, the graphite tended to be backed up by steel. Uh, the steel shell would be produced under code rules, but not being a complete pressure vessel, needing some graphite to fill certain areas, it, it actually wouldn't be an official full ASME vessel. Uh, often those would be stamped with a U2 stamp as a part, and then the state jurisdictions would make special allowances or dispensations for them. And, and so often those were called code specials because they were a little bit of a variation of the uh, normal rules. I think it kind of addresses some of the weaknesses that you and I have discussed about tantalum heat exchangers, tantalum not being a code material. Yes, exactly. And, uh, you know, not to go off on too big of a tangent with that, but in a tantalum exchanger with um, the uh, fixed tube sheet shell and tube arrangement and expansion joint in the shell, the tubes are actually holding the thing together. They're under uh, tension from pressure. So speaking of pressure, um, a typical graphite heat exchanger, how much pressure can they handle? What's, what's considered an upper limit in terms of temperature and pressure rating for these things? Well, the ASME code has application limits in it. So if it's a code application, you're limited to 350 PSI contained pressure and then temperature limits of minus 100F or 400F. 
Now, it, it might seem like the 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 pressure limit is a little bit irrational because you can always make things thicker, right? However, in discussing this with the vendors, the challenge as the pressure goes up is that it becomes very difficult to seal uh, graphite components internally with gaskets or to seal to the nozzles. And so uh, applications approaching the 350 PSI are already challenging enough that, that the manufacturers are not really very receptive to, to raising this limit. And then the 400F maximum design temperature, that corresponds pretty well with the limit for the phenolic impregnation. As you approach 400 degrees, that material is degrading in service, similar to getting into the creep range for, for a steel material. Now, it's a fair question. If you're using a different impregnant, why can't it be higher? And it's actually a conversation that we're having in the ASME code committee at, at present, because there are other impregnations. You can have uh, fluoropolymer impregnation, PPFE, and also a carbon impregnation, which is produced just by flooding the raw graphite rather than with phenolic. You flood it with an organic material, subject that to repeated baking cycles, and in effect, uh, carbonize the organic in the pore spaces. So it's more like a solid 100% carbon structure. And uh, those do have a higher service application range. And so it's, um, you, you may see some distinction made in the code going forward on that point. It's hard, hard to say just where we'll end up on that. Okay, that's interesting. Folks, you hear, you heard it here first. Uh, <laughs> so you, you can't deal with uh, graphite heat exchangers without noticing the the big stacks, uh, Belleville washers or springs on it. You know, differential thermal expansion is obviously a big deal on these units. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that's handled and how we prevent leaks uh, from occurring due to the... Uh, do the difference in thermal expansion and, you know, just, uh, the concerns about overstressing graphite in general. Yes. The, the displacements from thermal differential expansion can be significant fractions of an inch in a graphite exchanger. And real, really there are two drivers for that. There's the difference in the coefficient of expansion. Graphite tends to be about one third out of steel, but then if the temperature of the actual components is different, say steam on the shell and a cold liquid in the in the tubes or the blocks then you end up with even more differential and so because the graphite uh it doesn't have local yielding and ductility really you, you can't consider secondary stresses as, as being operative for the thermal cases it's um you, you really have to protect the graphite from high stress from the thermal cases and so the typical physical arrangement is to make the graphite floating in the shell. And so whether it's cylindrical block or shell and tube, one end of the exchanger will have uh, a graphite component that floats in the uh, shell flange at the end. And that tends to be sealed with either packing or an O-ring. Now you mentioned the springs and at a glance immediately recognizable as a bit of an oddity for pressure vessels. Now, Often here, it, it's said that the springs are on there for thermal expansion. And in a sense, that's true in that they have to accommodate the thermal expansion. But the actual reason that you put the springs on is to resist pressure forces and maintain gasket sealing because there are, there are separation forces from pressure 
process side pressure flows in between the faces of cylindrical blocks, for example, and would push them apart without the springs to hold them together. Also, you need the springs to overcome packing drag. Otherwise, if the packing stuck and then you had a process swing, you, you would unload the internal gaskets. And then it's a similar consideration for the, the shell and tube. Uh, you can actually build a shell and tube without springs, and the floating end simply slides in and out of the shell in response to thermal expansion. Other than the packing drag, the thermal expansion doesn't cause anything to be in a bind as long as uh, the uh, floating component tube sheet is able to traverse uh, the range that it wants to. However, pressure in either the shell side or, or the tube side in a shell and tube produces tensile stress in the tubes. And this is a very interesting thing. It's a little counterintuitive. You might think pressure in the tube side would make the tube sheet go into the shell, but it's actually the opposite. Us, uh, are we mechanical engineers are trained to make free body diagrams and cut lines across things. So uh, if you just visualize, say, a, a dumbbell, two uh, chambers connected by a straw, and you pressurize it, uh, it wants to come apart um, at a cut line across that interconnecting tube. And so that's a helpful way to visualize what's going on. That, that structure would actually elongate when pressurized rather than, than shorten. And so that's what goes on in the shell and tube. And uh, so the springs are applied to counter the uh, pressure forces. Yeah, so it's actually a pretty complex structure on a shell and tube when you consider that the tube sheets are subjected to a bending moment from the applied pressures and the resulting forces in the tubes. It's pretty complicated, especially for the tube sheet. The deflection of it is governed by a fourth order differential equation, pretty complicated solution to that with imaginary numbers and series expansion terms and so forth. All of that is in the ASME code in part UHX and the graphite portion UIG draws on UHX. And um, yeah, so similar math and so forth. We actually pulled that math from UHX into UIG a couple of years ago. And it was largely driven by what was an oversight in the code. Back in 2015, we continued to have difficulty with uh, problematic application. And so one day our Six Sigma black belt asked me, are you checking those calculations? Are they being done right? Are they producing valid results? And so long story short, uh, deep dive into all of that revealed that the code was actually lacking. It overlooked that initial preload that's put into the springs. And so we corrected that for the 2019 edition. And um, at present, all of the manufacturers should be using the, the new method. But for older shell and tubes, you might want to go back and reevaluate that design with the updated calculation and see whether the unit might benefit from uh, an alteration to the springs or even addition of springs to a unit that didn't have them in the past. The nice thing is that's not a, that's not a tremendously expensive or prohibitive retrofit to just modify the springs. So that is a worthwhile yeah. exercise, isn't it? Yes, that's right. The, the unit in, in the past, because you didn't get the benefit of that preload, the springs may not have been applied because they wouldn't show up properly in the calculation, but if you're breaking tubes because of pressure forces, then adding springs. The the one pitfall in that though is that that's going to increase the bending moment on the tube sheet. So you might find that the tube sheets are not really thick enough to accommodate the addition of springs or or increased spring load. But still, it's worth a, 
an effort to dig into that a little bit. And you might even see that it, it requires a new replacement unit, but that unit could be more reliable than, than an open where the spring design was really not on a good basis. Let's take a quick break for a minute here and just hear our word from our sponsors. The heart of MTI is our ability to meet in person, to network and to get to know one another at our in-person meetings. MTI has three meetings a year in the US, two meetings a year in Asia, and two meetings a year in Europe. Those are in-person live events where valuable technical information is shared and our members are able to work together to develop and work on projects. However, during the era of COVID, we all learned that there were some slim benefits to being able to operate virtually. MTI is pleased to announce an MTI Virtual Global TAC Meeting. It'll be September 6th and 7th from 9 to noon Eastern Time. Please see the MTI website for more information about the technical content of this meeting and our other upcoming live in-person meetings. But we hope you'll be able to join us September 6th and 7th for MTI's first Global Virtual TAC Meeting. If we talk a little bit about how the graphite um, degrades in service, you know, does the, does the graphite degrade or just the phenolic? And and how do you inspect for that? Well, both both can degrade, the phenolic and, and the graphite. Either one can be chemically attacked. by uh, Oxidizers, for example, um, the phenolic is subject to attack by incompatible organics. So uh, temperature, as in for most materials, temperature is generally the uh, driver of adverse effects, also increasing concentration of acids. So something that might be good for, say, a 20% acid at 300 degrees won't be good for that at 370 degrees, say. Uh, and again, the as temperature increases, that tends to promote additional polymerization and effectively sublimation of the phenolic, and that can be either in the impregnated material, or it can also occur in the cement. I'm actually aware of a case in which on a shell and tube, the cement and the tube joints sort of went away over time. You know, that was a, uh, a challenge in application near, near the limits of, of the application. And so as the material degrades, you can see an overall loss of strength, um, which results in breakage of parts possibly, or can also result in leakage or permeation of the process through the parts. Uh, you can have cracking uh, as well. That can result from thermal shock, fluctuating loads. So really tuning up the control system, doing things like cascades on your control loops and smoothing things out is good Good for graphite. You want to watch out for things uh, like high velocities as well. Runaway uh, control valves, wet steam, things like that, high velocity water can even cause erosion. Particles in, in the water, if sand gets in the water, that, that can cause a lot of problems. What kinds of inspections and testing are done when a customer receives a new unit into the plant? And then what types of um, inspections should be done after it's been in service for a while to try to anticipate whether you're getting close to one of those points of um, where, where cracking and catastrophic leaking could be um, imminent. Yeah, so two parts to that that question, the, the, the new equipment part and then the in-service part. For, for uh, new equipment, the transport of it is a real challenge because of the fragility. So when it's shipped, it's usually shipped on an, a dedicated 
air ride trailer if it's equipment of very much uh, size. And some precautions can be taken to, to indicate damage has occurred in service. For example, you can put shock indicators on it or also uh, an air or nitrogen pad, a, a pressure blanket uh, with a gauge on one side is a really good way to tell whether the internals have been damaged in transport. Now, the the NBIC, National Board Inspection Co., we often think of it for repairs and alterations, but it has other parts as well. There actually is a part one for installation. And so the suggestions there for setting the equipment and making the nozzle connections and so forth are, are very useful. In service, it's often said that graphite is not broken until it is. So <laughs> it, uh, it, if it hasn't fractured, it, it generally provides uh, pretty good service. Although in these extreme services, you can end up with permeation, say, through a tube sheet externally. Now, one thing about these applications, they're often set up with the service size, say steam or cooling water under a higher pressure than the process side. And that can be done intentionally so that leakage is, is into the process stream. And so you could actually have a unit that is cracked all to pieces and leaking profusely and never know it. And that actually, a little flashback, that was one of my first experiences with graphite, was taking apart an exchanger that had been together a long time, thinking that we were going to overhaul it in a short turnaround window. And it was kind of a, a mess where the blocks were all broken, the steel shell was badly corroded. So I guess they're the main point that I would make is that asset management and the whole toolkit for that is important to, to know the damage mechanisms that exist in a piece of equipment, the, the sort of time span over which they occur and, and schedule and manage inspections and overhauls to really meet the, the reliability needs of the equipment. Uh, if leakage is a concern, say for example, if the service is lethal or really problematic to have the leaks, you could set up leak detection on the, on the stream and know if you have a, a leak in service. So um, are there any special considerations when selecting and installing this graphite equipment? Well, yes. Fundamentally, you want to look at the, the application and see, is it a vaporizing service or liquid to liquid? And that can drive the selection. Also, if both sides are required to be corrosion resistant, that might point you to something like a rectangular or a cubic exchanger or maybe a plate exchanger where both sides are naturally corrosion resistant. Also, you want to put some effort into the thermal rating of these units and really dial that in as best as you can. Now, that's difficult for block exchangers because commercial software like Aspen, HTRI, it's not really set up for these block exchangers. It's more for shell and tubes. Now, you can you can sort of backdoor it. You can estimate convection coefficients, but still it's difficult to really do an accurate thermal analysis. So you want to go to the manufacturers for that because they have the relationships based on their experience, and those relationships are pretty well validated. For a shell and tube, you can use the modeling software and actually take the mean metal temperatures or mean graphite temperature for the tubes and dial those in really well. And that will help you to optimize the spring design. And 
Along with that, you don't want to specify the design conditions any higher than needed, especially the pressure. Because remember, the springs are on there to counter the pressure. And if you have a highly sprung unit, then it's in a higher stress state, even when it's not in service. So jacking up, so to speak, or, or gratuitously raising the design pressure, thinking that you're building a more robust unit, it's probably actually counterproductive and you're better off making the design pressure only as much as needed for the application. Uh, you also want to look closely at flow-induced vibration and make sure that that's designed out with proper baffle spacing and such. And uh, when you do get the quotes, you might want to get quotes on different grades. They'll differ not only in their price, but also in their availability. Some of the better materials come from overseas, Europe, for example, and can have pretty long lead times on them. I appreciate your words of wisdom on not over-designing things. I know that's super important for graphite, but that, that, that could translate to many types of equipment in the chemical plant. Well, that's right. It, and that's uh, one of the key lessons that I've learned is that thicker is not better. When you're looking at broken parts, it's easy to think if it had only been thicker, it would not have broken. But that could actually be the opposite because thickness works against you for things like thermal shock and thermal expansion. Uh, I talked earlier about floating design, and that, that's good for the graphite uh, tubes and the uh, cylindrical blocks and so forth. But you still have typically a fixed end uh, tube sheet that's sandwiched between flanges with the studs floating in air and the tube sheets heated. So you have thermal stresses even in a fixed uh, tube sheet. And I think that probably accounts for a lot of the failures that occur. We've, we've talked about all the good parts of graphite. Let's get into the into the bad part here. Uh, what what are some of the in service challenges with graphite equipment? And specifically, I'm thinking of uh, gasket leaks. <laughs> Anybody who's dealt with these things, you know, the the seal and the nozzles could be can be a problem. Yes, even as you ask the question, that my thoughts go to the sealing of gaskets as the biggest challenge with graphite. It generally causes the most in-service consternation out of these things. Uh, even though the nozzles on graphite should be equipped with flexible bellows or very flexible piping, that, that helps some to remove the bending moments, but it's still a challenge because the allowable torques and the gasket loads are limited by the content, contact uh, limit on the graphite. And so you want to use low-stress gaskets, things like expanded BTFE or even elastomers. Sometimes the manufacturers of the exchangers will supply or recommend graphite gaskets as well. And this tends to be the uh, the kind without the, the foil, the metal foil in it. So they tend to be kind of fragile. Uh, you definitely want to use best practices for making up the flanges. With new hardware, you want to pay attention to the nut factor. You may want to revisit that, the actual torque calculation with the manufacturer because sometimes the torques are just listed on the drawing and you don't know the basis, what nut factor or friction factor was used. And so dialing all of this in as precisely as you can is, is worthwhile. Um, you also want to be careful about substituting coated bolts or using an extra slippery lubricant like a Molly lube on these studs because that can actually result in breakage of parts. You also want to be careful I'm making up 
the nozzle connections about bottoming out the bolts in blind holes. And so it's best to use studs and nuts on those connections. Also, especially with the Teflon gaskets, you may find that retorquing them, or certainly you'll find that retorquing them is beneficial and you may want to do thermal cycles to get the gaskets to seal. Beyond the sealing aspect, uh, you want to avoid physical damage in the field. I've heard many stories about sandblasters not recognizing that the graphite is present and destroying it with sandblasting. There's also a tendency, if there is a leak, to send the, the mechanics out to fix the leak, and they have a tendency to jump onto the spring stacks and tighten them. And usually that's not not the answer. That's not, not a good move, not the right flange tighten. And I've uh, actually intervened a number of times. I always made it my practice upon arrival at work to look at the overnight ports and several times that men jumping on the bicycle and riding out to intercept the mechanics just as they were about to use an impact gun or tighten the wrong flange on the graphite exchanger. That's been my experience with the graphite exchangers it is a lot. If you don't, if you're not really familiar with that equipment, you better look at the drawing before you start touching any bolts. Cause it's not, it's not always really, uh, inherently obvious from the outside of the unit. What, what component is doing what? Yes, that's right. You can have three or four flanges stacked together in close proximity with interconnecting bolting and the boltings going one way and another through this and that flange. And it's not obvious at a glance, just what to tighten to fix a leak. It does uh, prompt the thought uh, though about packing and O-rings though, those are typically sealed by a flange. And so you want to keep those tight avoid uh, ongoing leakage out of those, but you want to also not, not over tighten, over tighten them or, or the floating in bind. I'm reminded also some other hazards to graphite equipment are condensation induced water hammer where you have steam in contact with cold condensate and that can produce very violent hammering. If you're not if you're not familiar with that effect it's uh, it readily comes up on the internet if you search condensation induced water hammer makes for fascinating reading Many really tragic events have, have occurred in industry. A number of uh, fatalities have occurred because of that phenomenon. And so if you're working with steam-powered uh, equipment, it's really good to have a grasp that uh, hammering, especially violent hammering, should never be considered normal in a steam system. It's always an indication that steam is condensing in contact with subcooled condensate. I think we're at risk of, of going off into another topic that I know you have a passion for, steam systems. So I'm going to try and divert you here. <laughs> um, so graphite exchangers, a lot of times, I think, get uh, pulled out of the process and just shipped off to the manufacturer. You know, uh, people are a little afraid to touch them or even look at them the wrong way. Um, are there are there things that an equipment owner can do? Um, to, to that equipment in the field, or should it always just go back to the manufacturer for, for anything other than, uh, assembly piping to it? Well, I'm glad you asked this question, you know, for someone who's basically a mechanic at heart, this, this represents the fun part of, of working with these things. And, and yes, it is possible to, to do quite a bit in the field. For example, if, uh, 
the packing or the O-rings need to be replaced. There's no need to pull the unit out and, and send it off, uh, especially if it's vertical and, and the floating end is at the top. You can pull that floating end apart pretty easily. You relieve the spring pressure, then just disassemble the flanges, and that will expose the packing or the O-ring. You can also just lift the packing flange, uh, run the nuts up, and hold the packing flange up, and you can get at the packing typically with a packing extractor, or you can replace the O-ring. Now, you would have to splice the O-ring in, in place, but, uh, you know, there are techniques for doing that, including just super glue. I've had very good success with that. You can also fix uh, a shell gasket leak at the fixed end, and this can be done. For example, if you have a vertical stack of blocks, you can lower the entire stack on uh, some threaded studs on the lower flange. First, you remove the spring pressure from the top, take the top end apart, and then you can lower that flange in the whole graphite stack, replace that gasket with, say, joint sealant or PTFE braid and put it all back together. Typically, you, if you want to replace blocks, you could also do that in your plan. Although, uh, you may want to pull this shell out and actually have it in more of a shop environment. Uh, you reface nozzle faces in the field? Well, you could. Personally, I haven't, haven't done this a lot, but the nozzle faces can, can really be an issue. One thing that you see with those is very coarse serrations. And one thing that will happen is what I call uh, the labyrinth effect, where you have a chip at one place uh, around the orientation, say at zero degrees, at 180. Another serration has a little chip out of it. And, and so the fluid can wind its way around those serrations and uh, end up with seepage. And I don't know that I really have a good answer for that. In, in, in some cases, I've replaced the entire uh, header or dome with that nozzle insert or uh, gone to a more sealable gasket, even an elastomer. But I suppose it would be possible to, to machine them in place with a portable machining fixture. That's actually a, a pretty good idea. Another repair operation that you can do in your plant is something that we added to the National Board Inspection Code a couple of years ago. And uh, under this provision, a user and plug tubes in a shell and tube without a G-mark, provided certain conditions are met. You actually have to have an R-stamp holder involved and do a demonstration test piece. But this allows you to plug a tube in a shell and tube without calling in a G-stamp holder. And the G-stamp holders tend to be limited to the manufacturers. So you could really be in a bind if they're not available. But we put this provision in the National Board to accommodate these cases where, uh, say, a jurisdiction won't allow an out-of-state G-mark holder to come in unless they do some elaborate qualification or, or something. So this may be very useful. That's why we added it to the NBIC, so I hope that it's uh, used. I would also note that for all of these repair operations in the plant, the, the manufacturers can provide support. They, they could dispatch a single person to provide technical supervision and maybe some hands-on work to work in conjunction with your mechanics to, to accomplish accomplish these sorts of repairs. So if you stock if you stock uh, spare parts, graphite blocks and so forth, you could draw on the manufacturer technical support to actually assemble those in your plant 
or you could hold the box and actually send them with the unit and then the manufacturer could use them to do the assembly. I had a follow-up question about the uh, plugging tubes. Um, we talked earlier about the adhesive cement that's used. Um, I assume that would be used on the plug a tube as well. Um, and it sounded like most of the manufacturers kind of have their own in-house mixes. Where do you procure the adhesive cement to do plugging? Is that is that available as a product out there for, for plants or owners? Yes, it, it is available. The, the NBIC provision requires that you use a tube plugging kit provided by the manufacturer. And so that kit will come with all of the parts, including the cement and a procedure. And it will also include uh, a demonstration piece that proves that you've cured the cement properly by doing what we call a twist test. So it's two pieces that you cement together and then it's designed that you apply torque onto one of the parts and it's required that it break in the graphite part rather than in the cement. And so that's a demonstration that you mix and cured the cement. Okay. Properly. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. So, uh, I, I think we've talked about a lot of the different aspects, uh, for, uh, creating a reliability strategy for this type of equipment, but maybe here you could, uh, you could kind of compile or summarize those, uh, those comments. Well, yes. Um, I referenced earlier that I was a reliability and I don't know if it was the expectation, but I, I sort of made it my mission to integrate and pull together the entire life cycle for, for the equipment from, from beginning to end. And I would just say the graphite will, will respond to that sort of uh, asset management technique, the application of the full reliability toolkit, just like anything else. It, it doesn't have to be just a black box that's only supported and understood by the manufacturer. Literally a black box, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so you can, you can apply uh, things like uh, defect elimination techniques and so forth, that, which I think is, very, is a very powerful technique to actually learn from failures and then take those learnings and apply them back to the beginning of the cycle. And as you update and replace equipment, eliminating the defects that you've identified from failures, eventually you'll have a more reliable plant. It's also important to learn the reliability drivers for, for each application. Is it fouling that makes you take it apart? Is it problems with the gaskets? Is it degradation of the actual materials? Uh, one of the biggest challenges for, for the graphite equipment is not the graphite itself, but it's corrosion or degradation of the shell around it. And so uh, water is a big driver of that, both internally and externally. I've, I've heard it said that for a chemical plant, water is the hardest material that we handle. It has, has the biggest expense associated with it, especially when you consider external effects. So what a shame to have a very expensive heat exchanger and have, uh, have to do maintenance on it because the bolting uh, externally has uh, corroded very badly. I would also note that the spare strategy is a very important part of the overall strategy. Whether you stock a spare exchanger or just spare blocks, I can tell you from bitter personal experience that planning to overhaul a, an older graphite unit during a fixed turnaround window can be very stressful and even ultimately not 
successful. And so taking taking the unit out can be uh, pretty risky in that you might find cracked blocks, unrepairable blocks. You might find a shell that when you clean it up has thicknesses below the minimum thickness. So you could have concurrent uh, cementing of rods into holes and blocks while another crew is pad welding thin spots on a shell. It's not a good scene and, and you don't want to be there. So... Uh, stocking spares, if that's cost prohibitive, then you might want to selectively stock just a couple of the internals and have a couple of spare blocks on hand or the, or the spare headers at, at the ends. But, uh, you know, the overall point that I would make really is just that you should apply continuous learning, uh, to feedback learnings from the field into the front end, feed those learnings into replacement projects and stop propagating defects and you know really you might find even though i'm a, a fan of graphite it might mean switching the basic materials or, or the style of exchanger you know one example that that i have of that was a long-standing graphite application that was a pretty mild service just a weak acid and not a lot of temperature but it really fouled badly and so cleanability was a big problem we were taking the thing apart regularly to clean it so that was an application that we switched to zirconium and made that that exchanger cleanable just by dropping the end plates and exposing tubes, and then you could easily water blast it. So those kinds of uh, considerations can help you deliver over time a more economical and more reliable plan. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. This was really, really informative and interesting. And you covered a lot of content that is not really available anywhere else. If this is this is unique, and we really appreciate your time. So thank you. Mm-hmm. We are very welcome. It was a pleasure. And thanks to everyone else for listening to this episode of the Corrosion Chronicles. Join us each month as we continue our conversation with subject matter experts discussing materials-related challenges and successes of the process industries. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For more information about the Materials Technology Institute, visit us online at mti-global.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.